Junius, it's great to have you with us this week. Thank you for being willing to appear on Classical You Podcast. I'm excited to talk to you. And you've got uh, two courses that you've recorded with us and a number of lectures on great books. And uh, just so excited for this content to be available as soon as possible. It usually takes us a few months. Um, you're also a busy man. You're uh, involved in some projects with Classical Academic Press uh, separate from these Classical U courses in our uh, Humanitas uh, new uh, history curriculum series. Uh, and you're also a writer and author and a teacher with a lot going on on your own right and uh, consulting with schools. So uh, tell us a little bit about just, uh, you know, an introduction, some of the things you're most excited about uh, before we jump into our topic today uh, as we consider um, some of the things that students are up against, uh, you know, in in our uh, contemporary world and uh, as teachers, uh, how the classical tradition and how our own pedagogical approach uh, to, to our relationship with students, our work with them in the classroom can best ameliorate some of those things, uh, you know, that, that are the greatest challenges we face today. Um, but first of all, just uh, give us a little bit more information about yourself and uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful week here. Um, and you're spending time in the studio and laying down content. Um, I have, um, I've always, I've always been a teacher and always loved teaching, but I haven't always accepted that that's true of myself. Um, and so there's been kind of a journey of um, moving away from the idea of teaching, moving back to the idea of teaching and whatnot throughout my life. And uh, this week has really been a very clear demonstration of the purity of that love because it's just such a joy in laying down content that I know is going to help not just students, but even help teachers to do the job of teaching better, give them some ideas and some fresh approaches to text and that sort of thing. Um, I think probably what, what drives me most that everything kind of, if everything circles one particular drain in my intellectual and, and, and professional activity. That's a scary metaphor, by the way. Well, and it's probably, <laughs> it is scary, and it's probably truer than I'd like to think it is. Uh, so I'm going to stick with it. If there is a sort of drain that everything is circling, um, I think it's that I love, um, I love it when the human mind is filled with an expansive vision. I like having that myself. I like seeing others come to it, and I like uh, doing the work of removing obstacles to that and providing inducements to that. And so teaching is a great way to get at that because you often get to watch the moment of realization in the students themselves. But there's also a, a sort of indirect awareness. I remember when I started uh, in graduate school, we had this dinner where we were able to sit with a faculty member and ask them questions. And Peter Hawkins, who's a Dante scholar, he made the comment. He says, yeah, sometimes we faculty just sit in our offices and listen to the sounds of minds expanding. <laughs> and it's just yeah. one of these things where you don't even have to see it happening. You just know that it's happening and that you have a small share in that process. And that is that is quite a thing. Well, that is beautiful. Um, the, you know, over lunches together and just listening in a little bit on some of the recordings that you've been doing with us, it's very evident, your love of that. And in, in your own um, learning uh, and uh, a lot of years of schooling, um, it's evident that you love, the, you want that for yourself and, and, and you're identifying that as something you want for your students. Uh, and, and one of the things that motivates you as a teacher, uh, something that you want to give them. So that's evident. Tell us a little bit about your own educational journey. I know you uh, have some impressive 
you know, uh, training. And uh, but I'd, lo- I'd love to hear you put that into your own words. Um, what and particularly with that idea of because um, I've heard you talk about synthesizing. You know, um, being and and that's something you you carry into your teaching, and we'll get to that. But um, just focusing on your, you know, give us kind of the facts about your education, but also what motivated you? You know, how were you synthesizing? What were you putting together? Yeah, it's a, it's a sordid tale uh, of woe. Um, and I think one of the things that I would want people to know right up front is that I was perfectly average as a student in high school. Um, but that's only because I worked very hard my senior year to raise myself up to the level of perfect averages. Um, I got a four-point GPA my senior year in order to raise my graduating GPA to a 2.7, which put me something like, you know, one, I think I was 177th out of the class of 365. I'm in solidly middle of the pack. Um, Did not promise great things for the future. Um, At the same time, I did very well on the standardized testing and got good scholarships for college because for me, the problem was a, a great disconnect that had happened between the, what I was doing at school and the life of the mind. I don't think there was ever an interruption in my joy in the life of the mind. I was a voracious reader from a very, very young age, and that was never not true of me in my life. Um, and I also was a voracious devourer of facts. I couldn't wait to learn more about things and whatnot. Um, so, so there was never a sense of, you know, oh, he's just lazy and doesn't like doing work or he just doesn't want to know things or whatever, because I would, I would do work. I was constantly doing tons of work. Um, one of the times, one of the things that was really kind of funny was I would not do my history homework, but I would be at home writing timelines and charts and things about the histories of the fantasy world that I was reading about in my books. And in some cases, it was literally the same homework assignment that I had been set. But I just didn't have the any passion for doing that about our world. And I think a big part of what had happened there was I bought the lie that was in the air at the time. This is, you know, so the late 80s, early 90s, that the world was a disenchanted place. I, I believe them. Yeah, it is a disenchanted place. And my, my daily life bears that out. And I don't want anything to do with that. That changed after I became a Christian, which happened at 16, but not immediately after. During my senior year, I read a book called All Truth is God's Truth. And the title is a very good expression of the thesis as a title should be. And I should know. Is that Waldersdorf? No, no. This was, a, I want to say this was like a J. Clyde Hole or something like okay. that. Some okay. Okay. Um, and, and it was, yeah, just something my dad happened to have around the house. And I mm-hmm. read it. And um, I was reading about it. And he was making, you know, defending the central claim with a variety of examples. Mm-hmm. And one of his examples really got me. Uh, because I've always, well, I haven't always, not true, but for a long time, I hated math. Math was the first place where I came up against a limitation to what I thought I could do, where the, the assignments were harder than I could manage, and I just couldn't quite figure it out. And so I was like, well, this is stupid. I don't want to do this, um, rather than accept that I have a harder time with math than with some other things. Um, and his example was a math example. And he said, um, well, 2 plus 2 equals 4 in base 10. But in base 5, it would be something else entirely. And so context for truth matters. And then he goes on to make a theological application to this. And I was just reeling because I was like, that's incredible. And the, for the, I saw this, there was this moment of opening, right, of, uh, of dawning, where I realized that even math could be a way of learning more about who God is, that every part of God's creation was there as a means for learning more about who God is. And I thought, I want to take calculus now. <laughs> I want to go deeper into this. 
and that began a revolution. Um, I had my grades had already started getting better because I had been rebuked by one of my friends who was a Christian with the passage, "Do everything is under the Lord." And so I began to do my work again. But now the passions were connected. Mm-hmm. Now it, it, the, the different halves of myself, the parts that love to read epic fantasy and science fiction, as well as the parts that loved to do rigorous work and really assimilate knowledge, all of that stuff was united together because all of it was united in purpose of the intellectual worship of God, which is really what you know, I described earlier, this expansive vision of mind. Mm-hmm. The concrete content of an expanded mind is a robust uh, and deep intellectual worship of God. That's what it's all about. So from there, coming into college, I was coming in with a lot of fire and a, a lot of missionary zeal. So I, I became a theology major with uh, focusing especially in missions. But at the same time, I was reading so much C.S. Lewis and I was getting to the end of what C.S. Lewis there was. And so I started reading a lot of C.S. Lewis's footnotes because I didn't know what else to read. And um, so through C.S. Lewis, I'm now reading the Aeneid and I'm reading Paradise Lost and I'm getting a great books, classical education without ever heard, having heard those terms, without knowing what was going on. Um, and and I, was, I was being blown away by these, these texts and just being doubted by them. And so a love of literature was really taking root in my heart. Um, one of my teachers saw this, one of my theology professors, my missions professor saw this, and he pulled me into his office and he recommended, he says, listen, I think you should change your major. I don't think you should be a theology major. I thought I'd done something wrong. <laughs> he's like you're not holy enough you know <laughs> and, uh, and, and well you know you've done so much reading and so much work already you kind of already have the level of knowledge we want to see in a bachelor's in theology and i hate to see you doing work that you're not really getting sufficient credit for and you have this huge interest in literature that you're not doing anything with i think you should follow that out you get a ba in english lit and then stay on for a master's degree in theology well this was a huge problem for me because i was very very impatient and I, I was, you know, college was, a, it was a close thing for me whether I was going to go to college. And I largely went out of cowardice because I didn't really see what else I could do that I felt ready for. Uh, so to spend two more years in college just felt like uh, just completely unimaginable. Um, so I had this, this kind of crisis. This forced me to face some truths about myself that I had never really faced before. Two very particular desires that I didn't know were in my heart came surging to the surface in that moment. The first was, I really wanted to study abroad. I wanted to live in another country and study and learn. And the second was, I wanted to study at a world-class university like Oxford. And, and here I was, a sophomore, you know, coming to the end of my, of my first semester of my sophomore year in college, a poor kid from the ghetto. Um, I figured those dreams were gone. Like that, that, that ship had sailed. I'd lost those dreams before I even knew I had them. And that was really heartbreaking. And I, I, I literally wept. Uh, thinking about this and feeling hemmed in by the requirements of a bachelor's degree that I didn't really feel I needed to do. I wasn't learning much, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, eventually I found a way, I sort of figured, okay, if I can take, if I can find a way to record 18 hours in the summer, then I can graduate a whole year early. And then I can, adding the master's degree would only be adding one year instead of adding two years. And so I decided that's what I would do. Uh, I won't go into the gargantuan, uh, superhuman, um, really uh, inhuman efforts that I had to go to to record 18 hours that summer. It was very painful, but I got it done, um, and I did graduate a year early. Part of getting it done was spending a summer, three weeks at Notre Dame, um, in a program through the Pew Foundation. And while I was there, I was exposed to uh, scholars who were leaders in their fields, uh, and, I, and I actually met Nick Walterstorff there for the first time. 
And I was also exposed to a world-class university and a world-class university library, which, you know, looking at our, what did we have? I think we had three or four levels in our library at ORU and looking at Notre Dame's 14-story Hesburgh library with touchdown Jesus on the back, you know, and it's just, oh man, it was, it was intoxicating. Um, and, I, and I thought, I, I don't want to do my master's degree at Old Roberts University. I want to do my master's degree someplace like this. That kicked off another crisis. Was I just following glory as the world saw it, you know, and these sorts of things. And so I was up, I was up most of the night wandering the campus at night praying, trying to discern whether this was a, a holy desire God was putting in my heart or if this was just me wanting to pursue pride and ambition and that sort of a thing. Well, I came to the conclusion that it was a desire God was putting in my heart, and circumstances continued to evolve and clarify my vision, and so I wound up going to Yale Divinity School with the express purpose of making that a launching pad from which I could then get into the doctoral program and do a PhD in theology at Yale, which I was ultimately able to do. Um, so over the course of that journey, you know, I spent, you, you alluded to a long time in school, uh, it took me 10 years to get my PhD. So between college, master's, and PhD, it's 15 years um, of education there. And, um, you know, what one level you can look back on, well, if I had chosen to write a dissertation on someone other than Hostage for Balthazar, I definitely could have been finished a lot sooner. Uh, if I'd understood dissertation writing better, if I'd had a different advisor, whatever, I could have gotten done sooner. But I don't actually regret it because I had an, an enormously long, protected amount of time to learn. And to be a Balthazar scholar, to be a medievalist, to be the type of person, the type of scholar that Lewis was, uh, requires time. There's no short circuit. There's no quick way to get there. And I was really blessed to be able to spend a lot of time in an amazing place, um, digging deep into a variety of different subjects. And that's kind of how I got here. Well, thank you. Uh, there's a lot going on in that story. Um, this is a bit of a tangent, but but we'll take it take it briefly. Um, you mentioned uh, you know being a poor kid from the ghetto. Um, there, it does sound like you know just at a kind of personal level and uh, family level, quite a um, quite a journey. And um, uh, you mentioned over some lunches, your your father uh, knew Martin Luther King Jr. and you know you have. Um, uh, you have uh, Baptist roots, and uh, and but here you are studying, um, you know, philosophical theology, Yale Divinity School, um, rubbing shoulders with Nick Waltersworth, you know, Waltersworth at Notre Dame, and uh, there's just. Uh, can you speak a little bit to your own um, your own background and uh, you know growing up and what it, what it's been like to. Um, wrestle through some of those, you know, am I just pursuing worldly glory? Um, uh, you know, how's how your relationship with your father and what, you know, what is, uh, you know, what, what does he think? Um, a, a little bit at just a personal level. Yeah, but my father has never been anything but supportive of my studies. Um, the, only, the only question he ever had uh, were feasibility questions about how we're going to pay for it. <laughs> but once, uh, once those questions were answered, then he was, he was always 100% supportive and, and very proud of the work that I was doing. As I understand it, and um, my family is not the best about sharing stories about the past, but as I understand it, my generation is the first generation to get people through college. And the majority of us did not finish college. Most of my cousins did not finish college, but some of us have. Um, and then my generation has also produced one medical doctor. Uh, and um, I think there's a couple of other master's degrees now, maybe an MSW, that sort of thing. And then, but I'm, and I'm the first PhD in my family. 
And so there was a great deal of um, knowledge that was not there about how systems worked and, and what pathways should look like. I had never heard of graduate school until my second year of college. I didn't know what that meant. Um, so it wasn't something to have desires about or not because I didn't understand even what that was. So there was a lot of just you know, in the culture, just a lot of things that were not, it, it was in, it was expected of me that I would go to college. My parents said, you owe it to us to go to college. And then once you do that, you're good to go. And they had, they themselves had no vision of anything beyond that. Um, but as I explained to them the path and what I was doing, they were, they were both very supportive of that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because my path took me to places, you know, being at Yale and in, in an elite program. Uh, and so, you know, by the way, I did get to study at an elite university. I did get to do study abroad. I, I studied in both France and, and in Rome. Um, so those dreams that I thought were out of reach were, were not at all out of reach. Um, just shows what, what a teenage kid knows. Um, but, um, in going to a lot of these, to these elite places and, and being welcomed into them, um, I came up, I came up against a lot of just, um, casual assumptions, um, casual expressions of privilege that the folks themselves were unaware of. They, they took a lot of things for granted that I had had to work very hard to get or even work very hard to understand. Like, well, what, is, what is graduate school? Like, I've already graduated, but I'm in college. What does that mean? You know, um, and so uh, finding a path and um, connecting to people who were constantly not understanding the gap that lay between um, the assumptions they were able to make about the world and the assumptions I were able to make about the world. You know, that was, that was part of it. Um, part of that is there's a, there's a great deal of that just with being black in America these days. Um, and that's going to be, that's going to create a different sort of experiences when you get to those elite levels where you are even more of a minority than you otherwise would be. Um, part of it is just particularity too. I mean, there were, every one of us was coming into, coming into a graduate school at Yale was coming into something that was at some level a profound culture shock. And that required a lot of adjustment on our parts, no matter what your, but even if you had, your father went to Yale Divinity School, there's still a lot of adjustment. There's a lot of imagination required to see what is your particular path through all of this look like. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, there were challenges, um, but uh, supportive family, uh, as well as, you know, just a lot of grace from God, letting me get to the right pieces of information at the right time. And some really, really great teachers who saw potential in me and were committed to walking me through the processes to realize that potential. Um, Nick Walterstorff, Marilyn McCord Adams, David Kelsey, uh, Miroslav Volk, my dissertation director, um, all, all of that stuff made a huge difference. Thank you for indulging me with a little bit of personal questioning. The um, This is a bit of an assumption on my part, but the uh, you mentioned leadership positions of your father. So Despite um, you know not not knowing uh, you know what graduate school was, there's still um, in in their own community uh, you know a, a kind of example. It sounds to me you know like of leadership. Um, is is that the case? Uh, you know what what might you have picked up? Um, even though there's this gap of kind of you know worldly knowledge or whatever you might however you might characterize it um, that that you uh, were able to you know, transcend the dreams you thought were impossible as a teenager, and it really was, you know, was doable. And, you know, break into some new frontiers, that kind of stuff. At the same time, you were given a lot, you know, from what I'm, from what I'm hearing. What, can you speak a little bit to, uh, you know, the, the types of um, 
maturity leadership, uh, you know, in, in your, uh, you know, past generations of your family that, that might have uh, shaped you in ways? Yeah, my, my dad's father was a contractor. Um, and so he wound up building a lot of the buildings and houses uh, for the community. And of course, this was during segregation. So there's um, this the black community and white workers aren't going to work there. And so he was kind of the guy who was kind of the impresario over all of that. Um, and they, my father grew up on a very large um, peanut farm uh, in Virginia. And so they were, they were of an important family in that community. Um, and it was through that my, my grandfather was the president of the chapter of the NAACP. And it was through that that they knew the Kings. Um, and my father himself uh, left home as a young man to join the army. And he fought in Vietnam and was stationed in Korea and Germany. And, um, you know, he never, he never learned the languages, but he always learned enough of the languages to get around. He was in the process of learning the languages while he was there. He loves language and that sort of thing. So growing up, he would constantly speak phrases in other languages that he knew, and then he would tell us what they meant. And so there was a kind of culture of multilingual um, stuff at home that, I definitely would trace my love of languages back to that. Mm-hmm. That was the seed that blossomed into a love of languages in myself. Um, and there was, you know, he'd gone to a seminary and he had, um, so he'd gone to Bible college um, and he, he was an ordained Baptist minister. And he had a um, an array of books around home. He had a, you know, a Hebrew Old Testament, a Greek New Testament. I actually took a lot of his books with me to college when I left. I sort mm-hmm. of uh, ran off with them. <laughs> and, um, and some of them I still have. And uh, so he, there was, there was, there was a strong sense around the house. The prodigal theology student is that one. (laughs) (laughs) Father, just give me your books. At least I didn't spend them on, you know, women and loose living. Um, He he had, even though it was, it was a stretch for him to be able to purchase it. We, we had an Encyclopedia Britannica set at Mm -hmm. home. And when I would ask him the answer to a question, he would send me to the encyclopedia to look it up and then say, come back and tell me what you found. And so some low-level sense of research and of engaging with this broader community of people who thought about things was there from the beginning. So, yeah, there was a lot that was done um, that was very intentional on my parents' part. Uh, They always made sure that I was well-supplied with books, and they always sacrificed to get books for me and that sort of thing because they valued education as a means of escaping poverty. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's that's, um, beautiful. The... um, I'm just, you know, indulging in tangents now, but this, I promise, is the last one. Um, you mentioned over, you know, another, we enjoyed uh, a couple of lunches and, and uh, dinner that uh, that was just a lot of fun. You mentioned a more recent uh, kind of realization uh, on, a, on a whole separate topic, just um, you were talking about, you know, when you sort of found the great tradition and, and you know, dove into Dante and, and uh, through the footnotes of C.S. Lewis, right, and and you were blown away. Um, but it sounded to me like, um, you know, you made the same assumption that pretty much all of us make, uh, you know, in your early years of loving all of that and, uh, and fully, you know, embracing it and diving in to swim in it, um, but that it's all, you know, sort of European and white. Yeah. And then more recently, you're kind of like, you know, actually, it's incredibly uh, full of all different kinds of, you know, Asian, African people groups, and, and uh, it's not a strictly you know european story per se yeah that's right uh this is this is very recent for me i mean i, I was always impatient with people who would say things like well you know saint augustine was black <laughs> who cares <laughs> i'm not reading him because he's white or black i'm mm-hmm. reading him what he has to say um but uh, again i think there's, there's a little bit of lack of awareness there um i wasn't 
quite aware of what we were doing to ourselves by our lack of awareness of the diversity of the tradition. Um, and so very, really, very recently I've had this, I've been rethinking the great epoch defining wars of the ancient world. Hmm. You know, the, Obviously, I've known for a long time that the Trojan War was a war over who would control the Straits of the Bosporus and therefore who would be the dominant trade power in the Mediterranean and even in the Black Sea. And that's that's why the, the story of Jason and the Argonauts, um, which is less often engaged in by students these days, is actually super, super important because you have these European marauders going into the Black Sea to steal from you know this, this powerful king in the Ural Mountains and to bring the treasures back to um to europe um but i had always thought of the trojans and the greeks i thought of it basically like a civil war and i always thought yeah the trojans and the greeks you know they're both kind of white europeans and this is kind of a, a war among these cultures and whatnot and it, and it was you know as i was learning classical language it, i began to realize that the trojans spoke a different language um and that, that but i still kind of struck me as it's different in the same way that french and spanish are different. Mm-hmm. you know it's, it's it's all still kind of within the family um, and that whole catalog of nations that are coming to Priam's aid um, in the beginning of the Iliad um, just kind of didn't really do much for me. Because my thought of the Middle East now, when I think about the Middle East now, I think about Arabs. And of course, there were no Arabs then. Um, but only reason I've realized now, this is, this is actually a, a very large cultural conflict between folks of very different skin colors and very different traditions and possibly different language groups. You know, mm-hmm. the Troy may be quite far over on the language tree from from where the Hellenistic languages were, the Proto-Greek languages that the, that the Greeks were speaking at that time. And then to fast forward to the Punic War. So Europe won that one, mm-hmm. barely. And it's winning it changed everything about how Europe thinks about itself to this very day. And Achilles has seized everlasting fame his name still has not faded um nor nor will it as long as there are humans and then fast forward to the punic war and rome versus carthage and again i kind of imagine the carthaginians is like white dudes speaking latin you know and this is kind of just another kind of internal war situation in terms of this empire it wasn't quite as bad for me i knew there was a bit more separation but to think of it as no these are you know every all of africa and greek that's called ethiopia and so this is you know these are these are Black people and this powerful, powerful empire warring with the European civilization over is Africa or Europe going to be a dominant civilization in the Mediterranean. And I began to realize that so these these epics are telling deeper stories than just the stories of the rise of Greece or the, it's not it's not there aren't just economic dimensions to this. There are cultural and, then, and there are deeper cultural dimensions than just what happens to the Greeks and Romans. It's, it's really, you know, in many ways, the continued dominance of European culture over Asian and African culture in the West is the continued legacy of those two wars. Um, it doesn't invalidate any of the ways we've read these texts before, but it does add another layer onto how we read these texts. It means that if you're a classical school and you're wondering, how can we be more welcoming to um, minority students and families? Well, one of the things you can do is you can dig into what's already in the tradition. You don't have to add a bunch of texts from outside. Although there's a lot of texts that'd be cool to consider. You can start digging deeper into what's already there and telling, being more attentive to how we're telling the story because there's a lot of dynamics going on there that we've been missing in the ways we tell it uh, to this point. Great. Thank you. Uh, specifically, the Ethiopians, what are some of the ways they show up in like Homeric literature as uh, 
a distinct people group a that have group. certain wild qualities. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, there's a mm-hmm. you can see this across Greece and Rome. There's a rich appreciation for the antiquity of African civilizations. Um, there's a there's a almost nearly universal conviction that these civilizations preserve older knowledge um, and a deeper connection to the gods than um, what you have in Europe. And so it's a place to go to learn wisdom. Um, they are respected for their arts and for their philosophy and these sorts of things. And you, and you see that showing up as early as Homer. A great example of this in Plato and the Timaeus, which a lot of people don't realize, is the dialogue that's the morning after dialogue for the Republic. Uh, they, they sleep together in the Republic and they wake up the next morning and Timaeus is like, something's been bugging me all night. And I finally figured it out. As Socrates was talking yesterday about this ideal city, it felt so familiar. And I realized that actually I had read about such a civilization before. I was in Egypt. And in Egypt, where the flood never happened, they have records, they have antediluvian records. And in those records, it tells of the ancient civilization of Atlantis and how it enslaved the entire world with its tyranny until one city led by the principles very similar to what Socrates was telling us last night was able to break their authority and that city was Athens. Mm-hmm. And so it's this, it's really, you know, Plato trying to give some antiquity to his ideas because new was bad and old was good. But the way that he does it is by substantiating it independently through Africa and saying, it, I'm not asking Athens to become something new. I'm asking Athens to become something old. Mm-hmm. I'm asking us to go back to who we really were. Mm-hmm. Those glory days when we put Atlantis down. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, those kinds of little nuggets really do um, kind of enrich what we are, you know, what the tradition that we that we have together. Um, well, we've really um, gone a little far afield from where, you know, I, I said at the beginning, but let's jump uh, for a few minutes to that topic um, of our own students um, in, in this day and age, um, you know, as classical schools uh, and specifically cl- classical Christian schools, um, there's uh, a lot of concern over, you know, a whole host of things. Um, and I don't, I don't want to start listing specifics because I want to hear what your list would be. But um, how would you answer the question, uh, you know, what's sort of the greatest um, obstacles to our students uh, in, in this day and age? What are our particular weaknesses or barriers um, to kind of accessing um the great tradition and, uh, you know, the, the goodness of uh, the humanities and the liberal arts uh, and, and, and our own faith, you know, our heritage in the Christian faith. Yeah. The, the first things that come to mind, three things jump to mind very quickly. The first is certainty. Um, there is a there's an epidemic of certainty in our culture these days. Everyone is so sure about everything. And I'll come back to a second to just what is so bad about that. But um, it's, it is hard for new ideas to enter into a mind that is certain. Certainty kind of ossifies the mind, right? And so we'll come back to that in just a second. The second is, um, let's call it uh, impatience. Um, and it shows up in a variety of ways, but there's a haste that moves on too quickly from details. We have everything in our culture trains us to glance over things, to read the headlines but not read the stories, to skim the stories, to skim your feed. Um, And so everything kind of encourages us to sort of float along life along the surface. And these classical texts won't let you do that. (laughs) If you try to read these texts in that sort of a way, you're going to find them boring and you're going to find yourself losing the thread and you're going to get dropped 
bumped out of them, you're not going to be able to finish. And I, and I know that experience from some of my early encounters with some of the great texts. Um, Plato's Republic, the first time I read it, was just brutally hard, and I did not enjoy it. But I stuck at it because C.S. Lewis said it's all in Plato. Go find it in Plato, darn it. Um, and the third thing I would say is um, insecurity. I find in students of all levels, from, from the very youngest grades all the way up through the graduate students that I have taught and mentored, I find a fundamental either lack of belief or suspicion that they just can't handle it, that maybe they're not capable of doing really great things. Um, and so uh, there's a bit of a fake it till you make it mentality. This was so pronounced at Yale. Every student at Yale was simultaneously convinced that they deserved to be there and that they were a total fraud and that any moment someone was going to figure it out and they were going to get kicked out. And I would walk into my class, the first day of class every year, and I would say this to them, and they would all like be like, how do you know? <laughs> <laughs> because I've been, I've been here a while. I've been around the block. You know, mm -hmm. You're not special. Everyone around you feels that way. So mm -hmm. notice that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if here at Yale, at, at the, the top institution in the country and one of the top in the world, take that Harvard, um, <laughs> if the students feel that way here, where in the world do you think there are students who don't feel that way? Mm -hmm. Right. If even the people here feel like like imposters, then that's going to be ubiquitous. Now, a second thought. So that was my that's those things that came up first. But as mm -hmm. I think about it more deeply, it's like what's the what is the unifying problem? What is the deeper thing that these are all symptoms of? And that comes back to I think I can name it quite succinctly as a failure in imagination. Our imaginations have gotten very very small. And that leads to, you know, that leads to certainty. When you can, when you can imagine three possibilities and you examine each of them, and the middle possibility is obviously the best of the three, then you become incredibly certain that that's the, the way it, that's the way it has to be, and there's no other possibility. And you stop looking for other possibilities because you've got it locked down. So certainty closes off imagination and it shuts the mind down. Certainty is when the mind says, "I've got what I need. Right? I think we've heard enough. We're good." I, my wife and I are constantly driven crazy. We're watching movies, and you know the character says, "Okay, I think I think we've heard enough. We got all we need." Like, no, you haven't. There's all these other questions you still need to ask. And of course, as the plot of the movie shows, they did not have enough. They did need to ask more questions. Imagination will keep you from um, seeing that there's more to see here, and so if lack of imagination will contribute to that haste that we talked about, whereas imagination is like, "Whoa, wait a minute, that could go a lot of different ways." Let's explore some of that, and it, and it slows you down. Imagination will keep you from being lost in lack of self-confidence because imagination shows you that far from there being one path or two paths to go, there are as many paths as there are people. There are more paths than there are people. As a human race, we will never walk down all the paths that there are. The sum total of all human endeavor will never explore all the paths. And the more paths you see, the more doable something feels. Because maybe I can't do, maybe I can't be the type of Christian St. Paul was. Maybe I can't be the type of Christian St. Francis was. But I might be able to be the type of Christian C.S. Lewis was. Right? And so you find a path for yourself. But then imagination is required to modulate that to be a path that I specifically can walk. With my background, my temperament, my social setting, and all of those sorts of things. So I, I, I think what our students need to, to engage the classical tradition better, to engage the world better, to engage their own demons better, 
is an expansion or a rehabilitation of the, their faculty of imagination. Thank you. So um, I hear you, you know, at first when you list your three, the sort of first one and the last one sound almost, uh, you know, is there like a contradictory uh, tension there? You know, you're trying to say, um, we have a, uh, what did you say, you know, an epidemic of certainty, but also an, an epidemic of uh, sort of lack of confidence. But as you unpack those, um, I, I'm, I'm hearing uh, different things. And uh, so certainty, uh, you want to take certainty apart a little bit, but you want to build confidence. Sure. And uh, and all of all of these three things you're saying um, that our imagination um, is sort of calcified, shrunk down. Uh, and if we could uh, deepen and and strengthen that, we'd be um, we'd be in a stronger position. Um, to engage um, our faith, uh, our you know the great tradition, the great books, and uh, and to grow in these ways uh, and our kind of intellectual virtues. Um, so, uh, you know, a couple different questions come up, but let let me try to keep it practical because I, I start wondering. I'm a historian as well, so you know we could both uh, kind of. Uh, I think have a lot of fun talking about you know wh why yeah. <laughs> why why did the imagination shrink so much? You know. What happened? Uh, kind of, the, what's the story? But exaltation uh, <laughs> of reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, um, bash the Enlightenment for That's a while. Right. Um, right, yeah. You know, I'm happy to do that. But the, uh, uh, you know, practically, uh, we, and we should wrap up. Um, uh, you know, within I don't know, 15 minutes or so. But but um, let me ask a kind of practical question in your classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I know this is directly related to a lot of what we recorded. So, you know, wonderful. We're, you know, we did the right thing, I hope. <laughs> but, um, you know, what are, what are some of the ways that um, you try to help your students in just the small uh, details of, you know, the way you design your, your assignments mm -hmm. or the way you interact with them uh, that, that uh, try to awaken, you know, grow? Yeah. Their imaginations. That's right. Uh, I think it starts, you know, it, starts, it always starts from the very first moment of contact, which may not even be in person. Um, you know, sometimes, especially when I was teaching at the university level, a student might get my syllabus before the first day of class. You might know, jump on a classroom server or something like that and, and get the syllabus before they even there for saw me. Um, and I went to this professional development where they were, uh, we read an article called Death to the Syllabus. And the whole point was, you know, we, we get these students in the classes and we want them to be excited about the class and we want them to come back and not drop the class, but we spend the entire first class talking to them about the attendance policy and, and late word policy and that sort of thing, which is, you know, pretty uninspiring stuff. Uh, and they were arguing for getting rid of the syllabus entirely. And I'm like, well, but no, syllabi are important, right? They, they convey a lot of important information, even if students tend not to read them. Um, and it's also a reason why you can't just leave it to them to look at. And so I thought, okay, how would I, how do I, how do I take into this, this criticism to heart without letting go of something that I think is a really important feature of my courses as well. And what I decided on was um, to do, to begin with something beautiful and inspiring. So if you look at a syllabus for any of my college classes, every one of them begins with paragraphs. And those paragraphs are spinning forth some sort of a vision. So we're talking about, we're gonna do a course on maybe um, medieval, an advanced medieval course on both secular and divine and sacred love. In the beginning, I'm going to start talking about the um, dynamics of love as love is driven by, it's awakened by attraction 
but it begins at a moment of being arrested. It progresses through romance by which there's a mutual invitation to a symmetrical relationship of admiration. And then, you know, bring in some beautiful imagery and that sort of a thing so that the students have their hearts set on fire from the very first moment and they can't wait to get into the books. And then I step aside, which I'm talking about some of the syllabus type stuff. And the whole time they're like, this is great, this is great. What are we going to read? And they go home from the class that I, a lot of times I'll see them sitting outside the class reading the first book <laughs> because they can't wait to get into it because mm -hmm. I've gotten their imagination to it. The people perish for lack of vision. So give them a vision. Lead the students by their loves. And then, again, in the classroom, when it comes to giving assignments, the work they do in the classroom, the work they do out of the classroom, in the classroom, I'm going to make a space where they're going to feel encouraged to bring their crazy theories. They're going to feel encouraged to explore stuff beyond the text because I'm not going to laugh at them. I'm not going to say, well, that's not really relevant to what we're talking about here. I'm going to say, okay, so bring us back to the text with that. Where do you, what in the text, where do you see that? And what kind of supports that? How would you respond to this this part of the text, which doesn't seem to support what we're talking about? Not say you're wrong because this the text says this, but say no. How would you respond to that? How would you bring that into your theory? And so they're learning that the classroom is a safe space for their ideas, and that causes them to continue having ideas and they continue to approach that to take them to the parts of a text that are most exciting, that are most of those beautiful lines to spend a good amount of time reading the lines for them, reading them well so they can hear the poetry of it, so they can be struck by it, because the ear understands better than the eye does when it comes to poetry. The stuff I'm asking them to do at home, you know, yeah, maybe write, write a paper, but it may have, you know, to describe the plot of this story. Why did character X do action Y? Pick a scene and rewrite it from a different character's perspective. Write a backstory for a character that doesn't have a backstory rewrite any part of the story you want in a different literary genre. Right? Some of those types of assignments that allow them to bring their own particular interests and talents and loves of beauty to the work that's being done so that at, at every point, space is left for wonder. Space is left for creative creativity, imagination. Space is left for the recognition of beauty. That's great. Um, it's interesting your you know your uh, example from the syllabus. Um, I I would even uh, feel this a tiny bit myself as a teacher. You leaned on a kind of uh, ability of your own to write a prose paragraph that would inspire a student. Now, I'm not sure I could do that, so I might be trying to steal something you know from a great work. But um, you know, and, and it was very abstract, you know, the symmetry of, you know, mutual calling uh, to a, sym a symmetry of love, but very inspiring. I mean, I was inspired, as you just said it. But the, um, so I, I can see it happening, but then, um, and, I, and I hear you using kind of, you know, engaging theoretical and abstract language quite intensely, but at the same time, your assignments are predominantly creative. Like, you know, all the, all the examples of assignments you gave, it's... Um, sort of don't do analysis of the text, but respond to a, a literary work with a kind of literary and creative response, uh, which I, you know, I, I, I totally um, agree with, that interacting in that way, but it's not antithetical to analysis. Uh, so how, where does analysis show up? Um, because I'm sure it does for you. Uh, you. You know, as you're giving largely what we might call creative assignments. Yeah, and you know, the... The, the uh, motto of my teaching business, Shooting Johnson Academics, is where wonder meets rigor. And I was only, I was talking about the wonder part there. We haven't spoken about the rigor part yet. 
Um, I want them to learn analysis from wondering about the text. Right. Um, think about when you were a, a kid and you saw Star Wars for the first time, or you saw, you know, Lord of the Rings for the first time. Okay, for you and I, not so much kids anymore. But um, what did you do? Right. You should, probably you went with friends if you could. And as soon as you come out of the theater, before you even get out of the theater, you're talking about it and you're arguing about this and that. And like, well, I think that what that meant was this. And, you know, Han should have done this and all these other sorts of things. And there is what's going on. You're analyzing the text and you're you're going deeper into the text by exploring around the boundaries of the text and connecting different elements to see what makes sense. I want to bring that kind of but but it, in no sense does it feel like you're doing schoolwork or it doesn't it doesn't feel hard at all. But I've been involved in a lot of these conversations in my life because I'm a nerd. And um, the rigor with which these conversations are carried out. I mean, if, if you want to see it, just jump on a token form or something like this. And you'll see really rigorous discussion of, uh, of these, these sorts of texts. So I want to bring them in through that, through that door. And then once they get there, you know, every, at every moment, I'm drawing them back to the text. I'm like, show me what you see. Reason through the text. You're learning to reason through the text. When, if you're going to write a, um, if you're going to write a background for um, Feely and The Hobbit, is there enough information in there for you to tell a scene from his perspective or for you to write about? There probably isn't. Right? They had to do a lot of creative stuff to expand his role in the movie because there's not much in the text. Um, and so I'm going to call you out on that. And I'm going to say, where are you getting this from? Mm -hmm. is, this, is this in The Hobbit? If it's not, this is, this is pure speculation. And that's mm -hmm. not what we're looking for. Mm -hmm. um, I also don't, don't give, want to give the impression that I don't also give analytical assignments. Um, I want to lead with wonder, mm -hmm. but where I want them to wind up is the ability for their wonder to lead them into a rigorous analysis of the text. And so by the time I turn to saying, okay, um, what is the meaning? What's going on symbolically when Bilbo hands the Arkenstone over to Bard and the Elf King? By the time they get to that point, they have thought through all the relevant questions led by wonder, and they shouldn't feel as if they're being asked to go into a different mode of discourse, even mm -hmm. though really they are, because there's going to be this continuum of what it means to talk about the text includes my joyful speculations as well as my rigorous analysis. Um, thank you. That's great. Um, let's wrap up with this question, and uh, you can go as long or as short as you want. But uh, I, I am going to ask the historian question. What would be your short answer to, uh, you know, in the kind of course of uh, Western European intellectual history, why, why do we see this uh, collapse, uh, withering of the imagination? When in the course of human events <laughs> did the imagination? <laughs> yeah, I... Unfortunately, I think the answer is reason, um, which is not purely to be laid at the door of the Enlightenment. I mean, it's, it's all the way back in Aristotle. And, and in many ways, it's there in Anselm, too. Um, whatever Anselm meant by faith-seeking understanding, it was demonstrably understood, um, even as soon after his death as Bonaventure and Thomas Aquinas, to mean that faith meant that you had to not understand that faith and understanding were separated. You progressed from faith to understanding and kind of left faith behind. Um, that bifurcation is the seed of the enlightenment elevation of reason. Um, 
but that's what it is. It's the the, the difference. A lot of people um, will talk about this. You know, as we mentioned earlier, the Humanitas series that I'm working with Cap on, which is a very very exciting project that we are going to create a new history curriculum based in reading primary texts. Um, but um, as we were having a meeting of a variety of the volume architects for the, it was the, the, the medieval volumes and the modern volumes, um, and there were, there were kind of these questions about boundaries between the periods and themes and how much do we try to make continuous themes through. And I very strongly resisted the application of themes that would make a lot of sense in the modern period to the medieval period when it would, they would really caricature what was happening in the medieval period. And so it kind of came to this question of, you know, how do we characterize these two different ages? Is, is the, are the Middle Ages an age of superstition and the modern age is the age of reason? Or are the Middle Ages an age of faith and the modern age is an age of reason? And I said, you guys, if you're in the Middle Ages, if you're, if you're reading this stuff, it is not not an age of reason. <laughs> I mean, scholastic theology out enlightenment the enlightenment for their application of rigorous reason to things. What's, what's unique about the modern period is it's the ascendancy of reason alone. Reason does no longer needs faith. It no longer needs imagination. Reason itself understood very narrowly defined as analytical reason. That's all that we need to make progress in human knowledge and to make a better world. Um, and I think that was the problem right there. Reason is actually, reason always follows the imagination. The imagination scouts the territory ahead and um, gives reason good grounds for thinking that there's some place to set its feet going forward. Um, a lot of the fumbling that we've seen in the last several centuries has been because reason has lost its guide. And the imagination is the type of thing that the less you use it, the more it atrophies. It shrinks and shrinks. And reason is quick, you know, uh, reason alone, sovereign reason, self-sufficient reason is quick to colonize the ground vacated by imagination. So you wind up with uh, this, you know, this culture war between poets and philosophers, or between the humanities and STEM, or between the church and the world, which are all expressions of the central question of, can we do it with reason alone, or do we also need something else um, going along with reason alone? Thank you. That's very that's very helpful. And uh, you're not putting them, you know, you're specifically saying it's because we pitted them against each other. Right. And and you're not pitting them against each other. You're right. saying they 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 belong together. Right. Uh, although you are, uh, you know, um, saying that the, that the heart needs an inspiration. The heart needs to uh, pursue, you know, with imagination, it, a, a love, yeah. uh, and then reason has good work to do yeah. as a result. Yeah. yeah. Let's not knock reason down. Let's raise yeah. imagination up. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been delightful. And uh, in our in our next uh, podcast conversation, I'd love to indulge a little bit more uh, around that imagination question. Um, and uh, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Classical U podcast. Please do check out our website, classicalu.com, and our teacher magazine Altum. We hope you've enjoyed these conversations with presenters and live learning event hosts with Classical U.